This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Bail reform aims to curb or eliminate cash bail for people who are in jail, awaiting trial, and charged with either misdemeanors or nonviolent offenses. Bail reform has been advocated as an effective way to correct a societal wrong. The movement's byword has been, bail does not keep the most dangerous in jail, it keeps the poorest. Those who are most vulnerable and most in need are the very ones most likely to remain behind bars for days, weeks, even months. Bail reform releases many of these vulnerable low-income defendants. It allows them to return to their homes, go back to their families, and to keep their jobs. It also saves taxpayers money by managing jail populations. Jail is by far the most expensive way for a community to deal with defendants. A national average puts keeping a defendant in jail at $391 a day. In contrast, Probation on average costs $121 a day. Despite this argument, bail reform is receiving increasing pushback. Here are just a few recent examples. Progressive San Francisco prosecutor Jessa Bowden, who made bail reform a directive in his office, has been recalled. George Cascon, another progressive prosecutor, is facing a recall in Los Angeles. It appears the campaign has enough signatures to place the recall on the ballot. Judges in Chicago have been blamed for releasing defendants on electronic ankle monitors, but they then go out and commit violent crimes. And in a recent interview on the NBC Nightly News, New York City Mayor Eric Adams blamed rising crime in his city partially on judges who are, and it quote, not utilizing the power that they have, unquote, by keeping dangerous criminals in jail. Some pundits believe that voters are tired of being afraid, afraid of rising crime afraid of the homeless, and afraid that courts, under the guise of bail reform, are letting dangerous criminals out and threatening their communities. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're looking at the ongoing debate over bail reform. Some of the topics we'll explore today include, what is the current situation on bail reform? What should be the court's position regarding this issue? And what should courts be doing right now? I'm joined today by the Honorable Ed Spillane, Judge of the Municipal Court in College Station, Texas, and the Honorable Paul Farr, Judge with the Harriman and Alta Municipal Courts in Salt Lake County, Utah. Thank you both for joining today's podcast. Judge Spillane, what do you think is the current community feeling about bail reform? Have you sensed an increasing discontent in bail reform, either in your local jurisdiction or in what you've seen and heard nationally? I think the, um, the community's reaction is one of confusion. I think that there have been, in the last several years, citizens do see stories where someone commits a violent crime and there's a report that this person's out on bond for a similar violent crime. And there's a natural uh, reaction of questioning that. I don't think scientifically that, you know, if we looked at everything that that is happening at a greater pace. And we could probably explore different reasons why, but, but these stories I've seen more and more and 
people have seen that. So I think the community uh, reaction to, to quote unquote bail reform has been one of confusion and surprise. And I think we need to get out there and try to educate them as to number one, what is bail reform and what bail is all about. The only thing I would add is that our politicians, at least in Texas, have responded by sort of co-opting the word bail reform to do various changes in the bail system. So the word bail reform I've seen in the past three or four years has means different things depending on what you're specifically uh, defining reform is. Judge Farr? I think overall there is still support for bail reform among stakeholders in the criminal justice system. Obviously, we do see some pushback and uh, concerns that people have. Uh, there's continued uh, pushback from those with a financial interest in the monetary bail system. I also believe that you know criminal justice is not math. It's not a simple equation. We can't predict with certainty what someone's going to do in the future. And as judges, we collectively make thousands of decisions every day across this country about release or holding people. We do our best, uh, but sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we got it wrong under the monetary bill system. Sometimes we get it wrong under the, the new system. It's important that we learn from our experience and improve. But as Judge Spillane said, I don't know that it's necessarily worse or better. We need to learn from the results and statistics. Uh, but hopefully uh, the system can focus on risk and not on the financial issues and concerns that it has in the past. As an advocate for effective court processes and an active stakeholder in the criminal justice system, what do you think the court's position on bail reform should be? Judge Farr? So I, I think as judges, we need to be careful with this and also remember our ethical obligations. A lot of these are policy decisions that really should be in the hands of the legislature. I think what we do have a duty to do is to educate and inform those policymakers on what real world effects these decisions are having and collect and provide the data so that we can support a sound policy decisions. So I, I think that's really the role that we should have as judges. Judge Spillane? I would you know, agree with Judge Farr. We have, I believe, a duty to educate the public about the law. And I know a lot of judges, they shy away from any sort of public discussion because they're afraid, as Judge Farr mentioned, various other ethical obligations we have in terms of our comments. We don't want to show a bias, but we do have a really strong duty to educate about the law. And what I've seen in the last several years is that a lot of prosecutors and advocates for, for the cash bail system essentially pointed a finger at judges and, and blamed judges. And instead of just reacting directly to that, we need to make sure the public understands that bail, first of all, involves legally innocent people. That's what we're talking about. They have not been convicted. And we the whole point of bail is to make sure people come to court, to have their day in court, and also to protect society. And once people understand that, then I think they we'll have a better idea on what you know we can do in terms of bail reform if we're eliminating the cash bail system or we're keeping people who've committed violent crimes in, in jail awaiting trial. But I do think we have a duty to educate and speak about it because if we don't, we're gonna be sort of at the end, you know, people are gonna be hitting us as the whole 
problem with rising crime and other things when we, we know that that's really not true. Has your personal view on bail reform changed over the last couple of years, Judge Farr? So my views on bail reform uh, really have not changed over the last couple of years. I still think uh, that it's important that we focus on individual risk and not on financial status. Uh, I think we need to learn how best to implement that policy. And that's still the process that we're working on is hopefully learning from the data that we receive and from the decisions we make. But overall, I think it's still sound policy that we shouldn't be holding some individuals in jail just because they're poor and releasing other individuals, no matter their risk, just because they have the financial means to pay bail. So I, my position overall has not changed. Judge Spillane? My position hasn't changed as to the inadequacies of a cash bail system, which we in Texas still possess. However, my position in terms of how we can better work on making sure people get to court has changed as I've, I've seen that, you know, jail is not scientifically the best way to get people to come to court. Sending text messages, contact, a good pretrial program and pretrial services are number one, less expensive and more effective in making sure people don't come to court. Now, there are those who are violent, who have been accused of violent crimes, have a violent history. And part of bail is to protect society when we have probable cause, at least, that that person has perhaps committed a violent offense. But what I've seen, the one thing that has not changed is that as long as we have a cash system where for virtually every type of crime, you can pay cash or a surety bond to get out, it's going to leave the poor in jail and those that have money will be able to get out. And that is really not the point of jail. It's to get people to come to court and to make sure that we protect us, the community. Should any offense when the defendant is in possession of a gun be considered a violent offense? Judge Spillane? Generally, most of our felonies in Texas often will involve some level of violence. You know, there are other like financial crimes or drug offenses, but usually when a gun is involved in the occurrence of a crime, there is an element of violence there perhaps. So, you know, again, I, I would need more specifics, but you know, what most of the public see is a violent crime, sexual assault, anything involving some sort of violence or potential violence against a person or, you know, the use of a weapon. I would equate to as a violent crime. Now, someone that repeatedly is driving while intoxicated, maybe they haven't yet had an intoxication assault or a manslaughter, but there can be other crimes that could potentially, with their repeated nature, perhaps uh, present a, a uh, problem or a safety issue with the community. So um, I think sometimes we can expand on it, but in my, my opinion, the general definition of a violent crime sort of comports with our criminal justice system in terms of crimes against people or, and I would include the use of a, a weapon as well, even if they didn't actually shoot the weapon. Judge Farr? I think it's a factor that can be looked at. As example, the, the DUI, which was mentioned by Judge Spillane, if, if someone does not have a history of violent crime, uh, they're stopped for a DUI and they happen to have a, a weapon in their vehicle. 
that they're not prohibited from possessing that weapon otherwise, that would be a factor you'd probably look to and say, maybe that's not a violent crime. Uh, but again, if, if it's a crime against person or even a maybe a drug crime where the individual is prohibited from possessing a firearm and has one, I, I think that is, again, one of the factors that would lead towards that being viewed as a violent crime. And ultimately, I, I think, at least here in Utah, that would be the judge's decision. There are certain uh, offense types that a judge has the authority or ability to hold without bail, and that would be a factor in that decision. Does your court regularly publish statistics on bail decisions? And should courts publish statistics on bail decisions? For example, by ethnicity, gender, age, socioeconomic status, and also compliance rates as well as failure to appear rates? Judge Spillane? Um, the answer to that is yes. And one of the things that I support on Texas's quote unquote bail reform that passed in the legislature last year, one of the things that passed was that every court now needs to, with every bail decision within 48 hours, send to a central place in, in Austin, in, uh, the Office of Court Administration, exactly all those figures you mentioned, what the bail decision was, and any conditions. And then they take that now, as of April this year, they take that. And before any of us make a bail decision, we receive a public safety report, it's called, which tells us, has this individual been uh, is, is, are they out on bond on three other cases? Are, are they perhaps, they, you know, we may learn what's happened in Utah if they were in Utah. And so I'm all for that. Uh, but what that does is it allows the decisions to be transparent. And actually now citizens can go to the website and get a lot of that information, the public information as to whether someone's out on bond, et cetera. It also helps because a lot of decisions we make besides bail our orders of emergency protection, especially in, on assault family violence. And it's very important a lot of times that that be transparent and other people can know that because Texas at least is a very big state and it's easy for someone to do some in College Station, go off to El Paso or Dallas. And unless we, you know, we all have computers now, we should be able to communicate. But before we weren't necessarily learning what was going on in different cities and courts. So yes, so now we are. And I think within the next year or two, we should have all sorts of very good information for sociologists and others who want to look at that. Judge Farr? So in Utah, we're lucky to have a, an integrated computer system throughout the state for all court levels. Uh, the way we are dealing with bill decisions is the judge will receive either an email or a text message that there is someone that's been incarcerated. We need to make that decision and we review it. It, it comes with a uh, the probable cause statement, background information, then we make that decision and send it back on that same electronic system. So it is tracked. Uh, I know that we are gathering statistics, for example, failure to appear rates. I know social economic status is being looked at. I don't know the detail, for example, that goes into ethnicity and gender and age but I do know that some statistics are being tracked. And ultimately I think that's really important because you know, the idea of bail reform really does need to be based on data and sound decisions and not anecdotal stories as so often the case. What, if anything, should courts and court organizations be doing right now regarding bail reform? Judge Farr? So I think the most important thing we can do, especially for those that are already in the process of implementing change, we need to pay attention to that data. We need to learn from it. 
communicate with each other, not just in our own systems, but elsewhere, so that we can effectively implement these changes. And again, not be driven by the anecdotal stories or the, you know, the legitimate fear of public safety that some people have, but we need to be able to establish through data that these things are working and effective and accomplishing the purposes that, that we set out to accomplish. Judge Spillane? I, I exactly, you know, second what Judge Farr says. We need to be out there looking at the data, first of all, and become familiar with it. And then we do, I think, as courts, try to be as transparent as we can and also educate each other and then obviously the public. For instance, we've seen a rise in violent crime and there's lots of theories with that. But we also know that because of COVID, jury trials came to a standstill, especially with people who were in jail, that becomes a big concern. And obviously the time that people are waiting to go to trial has increased dramatically in some places, five times, six times the normal. Well, obviously that's going to be some factor too when we look at someone who happens to be out on bond or awaiting trial committing a crime. Now, it's not for us to get into big arguments, but if we can present that, I don't know that the public, you know, once things have right now, knock on wood, I know COVID hasn't disappeared, but things have gone back to normal. People think everything's back to normal in the courts, but they may not be because there's just such a backlog in terms of trials. And so, we need to look at all the figures and discuss with all the, the parties that have a role in it, and hopefully we can educate the public. There's always going to be people who are going to politicize or demagogue an issue to explain, say, rising violent crime. I mean, there's always going to be people who are going to try to move the ball or, or give an explanation, and, and courts are often easy ones and judges are easy targets because we don't talk very much, number one. And number two, we do make decisions in terms of the bail decision. So we need to study that, look at the issues, but also we need to be transparent and let people know what, what, what actually is going on to the extent that we can ethically, because we're not allowed to talk about a specific case and we have to be careful on that. But we can educate the public about the law and the basic facts that our courts are grappling with. Finally, what advice do you have for folks tuning in to today's episode? Judge Farr? Go back to something I said earlier. I think we really need to listen uh, to one another, not just in the courts, but stakeholders throughout the criminal justice system. We need to learn from our experiences and then communicate. I think most of the stakeholders in the criminal justice system do share the same basic goals. We might have different views on how exactly to accomplish them, but I think we can work together and build on those shared goals Again, as long as we're willing to listen, learn, and, and communicate. Judge Spillane? Depending on the various audience, I think many people involved in the criminal justice system realize that the people who are out on bail or bail decisions are all involving defendants who are legally innocent. But I don't know that the public always thinks about that. So I think it's important that we let people know. I think it's also important that people understand that to any extent that a cash bail system exists and encourages people who are indigent to end up being in jail, there is perhaps a problem. And I think it's very easy for a journalist or anyone to go to a jail, figure out who's in jail on quote unquote nonviolent offenses and really look into how long they've been there and why. And if they discover that the reason the people are in there is because basically 
their economic status, then we've got a problem. And that's a very easy thing to do. We've had fewer and fewer journalists. Whenever there's some scandal or something, you know, like Ferguson, Missouri, then everyone looks at it, almost like lifting up a rock. But we all need to uh, make sure that we're not, the bail system is not a device to keep indigent people in jail. It's a device to make sure people come to court and also to protect the community. The final thing is that also courts need to learn, and I'm learning every day, uh, that there are many cheaper and better ways to get people to come to court than jail and arrests and all that. And there's just so much involved in all that because you're taking people's liberty. And obviously, there, you, you mentioned, Peter, the cost of jailing someone. And sending, you know, if we have a doctor's appointment, I just recently had a doctor's appointment. I got maybe five text messages. We get text messages for restaurant appointments. That happens because it works. And so courts need to employ every type of practice they can to get people to come to court. Because again, that is the goal, is for people to come have their day in court and not necessarily sit in jail. I want to thank Judge Belaine and Judge Farr for sharing their perspectives regarding bail reform and the pushback. This is a topic that is hitting the media right now, and courts are ground zero in this discussion. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You see bail decisions firsthand, and you see their results. Thank you for your hard work in helping to keep the courts fair and impartial. Join us in August for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.